do the loving-kindness practice. And you'll always find that when you're in a setting like this where we're doing guided practice, it will always feel a little formulaic because the person doing the guidance is sort of moving through the general territory. But it's really important for you to not only practice in this kind of setting so that you can develop your own confidence of like using some of the things you've learned in the guided meditations, but make it more organic and intuitive and less formulaic so that it, you know, the whole idea is the meditation object is actually beautiful, (laughs) right? It should be something that you love doing, right? It feels good, even though, you know, obviously at times the heart doesn't feel very responsive. It feels like, I think it was Joseph Goldstein described it as cool water dropping on red hot metal. (laughs) (laughs) Don't make me do this. But lo and behold, as his story goes, as Joseph's story goes, enough of those drops of cool water and the red hot metal isn't red hot anymore, right? It, It will have its effect. It may take some time. So we just stick with it, whether you're using mental images, individuals, the different traditional categories from the early commentarial texts, like it's often taught here, or doing more of a radiance practice, like I suggested at the end, which is more like the Buddha taught in the suttas. But to have a sense of the different skillful means, and then to go at it and play with it and see where you can more skillfully uncover your own confidence and your own experience of that quality, that generous quality of the heart that cares, that wishes well. And one of the characteristics that everyone will find is this radiance or this expansive quality. It's not like, oh, I got to include more people or wider categories. It's like that's actually the nature of what we call love or metta is this expansive quality. You don't have to sort of make it that way. It is that way. But we have to uncover it, right? We have to use awareness, a directed attention, and all kinds of skillful means like using categories and using phrases to find it and then to keep it in view, right? And to keep holding it with awareness whatever it takes, whatever skillful means it takes to keep the feeling, that warmth or that light or that radiance of goodness, to keep it in mind as your meditation object. And just the opposite, when you bring awareness to anger, it's diminished. When you bring awareness to wholesome qualities of mind, they're strengthened. That's one way you can tell the difference between the wholesome and the unwholesome, right? Unwholesome qualities of mind don't last very long in awareness. Wholesome qualities blossom in awareness, right? So any questions about the practice today? Yes. Used a political figure as her difficult person. I found 
when I was doing that, it, it didn't change the way that I felt about the things that he said or did, but it opened up a little bit of space to me, and it kind of reminded me um, that I am connected to this person. I like to pretend I'm separate, but I'm not. Um, and it just allowed me maybe to keep my heart a little bit more open. I just want to shut the door. But mm -hmm. So I know Deb and you both have said it's not about a particular person. It's, it's about the process. But I found in a real practical way that this was helpful for me. So I wanted to... Yeah, so she's... This person's talking about working with a political person as her difficult uh, person. And uh, if I could just summarize what I heard you say, because I think it's a really important point. There is a very important, but in a way, ultimately, in a way, a side effect of loving kindness practice, which is it helps to transform and heal our relationships with other beings. And uh, that's what this person was talking about, how working with the person didn't change uh, this person's opinion of this politician's actions, but felt like this person belonged, that she could, felt, she felt connected with this person. So my question um, is actually about the benefactor. And Deb was saying the other day, we generally don't use someone who's passed on. But I, from time to time, like to use uh, a benefactor, like Ipama. Um, the words may not be exactly right, but then again, I don't know if those words mm -hmm. are right. And so I just use the same words I use for everyone else. I don't know if those apply for her. So is it ever appropriate to use someone who's passed on, and particularly in the benefactor case, is that something that's Yeah. So she's asking about the benefactor category and about somebody who might have passed on and why is it in the tradition. And remember, the particular, more formulaic way of doing the loving-kindness practice and compassion and and Brahma Viharas, you know, the four qualities of the heart practice, it's, it comes out of very particular sort of lineage within Theravada Buddhism, but there are many ways to practice and almost all of them aren't as formulaic. But when you're using um, it as a concentration practice, then it can be nice to have something pretty much set because it removes confusion for the mind about how to practice. And I think that's probably why that instruction about not using somebody who's passed on, because you might be in a really deep place, feeling a lot of love for your benefactor who's passed on. And then the thought could arise, where is that person? You know, And because we, you know, I don't know if anybody knows, but I don't know what, what happens when people die. And so that confusion could be an interruption. Yeah, so, but, but absolutely, that love that we're uncovering in a more general sense, like the way the Buddha taught this, you probably, many of you at least, have heard this chant. It's quite common, and in more than one sutta, you'll find the Buddha recommending this practice. I will abide pervading one quarter with a heart imbued, with loving kindness, with compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. Likewise, the second quarter, the third, the fourth, above, below, 
all around, everywhere, and every way, I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a heart imbued with these beautiful qualities of love, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. I think that's going to find Deepama. (laughs) Whatever, whatever the continuation of that mind, that heart is, it's hard to be outside of that, right? Yeah, so I think it's really okay in a general sense to be all-inclusive. And the real point that I think your, your comment makes is that we have to be freed up to bring to mind whatever helps us have confidence in the goodness that's here and now. And people like Deepama, who is uh, one of the teachers in this lineage and a very important teacher of Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and some of the other early Western teachers and someone who came to IMS and taught, I'm sure somewhere around her, her picture is here at the center. Where is it? Oh, NM200, yeah. So you can see her picture there. It's in the office too on the mantle. But um, yeah, a very powerful figure in our immediate tradition. And a lot of us find, uh, you know, it's like, this isn't for every personality type, but some of our personalities that are what we might call more devotional, when we have somebody like this, they're sort of a symbol, a stand-in for what, though we wouldn't necessarily say this because it doesn't feel right, but the fact is it's a stand-in for what we intuitively feel is possible in our own heart and mind. And it's like, oh, not, oh, I could never be. But somehow we think this heart is also capable of that kind of freedom or that kind of love or that kind of goodness. And we have to discover this confidence one way or another. And if a person does that for us, that's good. <laughs> Thanks for sharing with us. Other, we have a little bit of time. Anything else? Yeah, way in the back. But you might want to make that your most important, like that little discovery that you had might really change how you practice when you, you don't have to listen to a guided practice. So she, this person was talking about a kind of sluggishness that they've noticed at times in their practice, especially when it's uh, guided. And you know, <laughs> we, we in this role of doing guided meditations, we get these voices that are soothing and <laughs> guaranteed to put about 50% of the people to sleep <laughs> and then hopefully not agitate the other half. <laughs> so it's, it's always imperfect, you know. Th- th- but the idea is then on your own to realize how important it is to find the juiciness. It has to be real. 
And that's actually the same with regular awareness practice too. A lot of times when it's sluggish, it's because we're being aware, but we're being aware of the idea of what's happening in the moment, which is always deadening. But being aware of what's actually happening is actually enlivening, right? And it's the same thing because we have to find the thread, the movement of love. You'll find energy there. Whenever there's real connection, intimacy, there's some life energy. I mean, we might be sleepy and need to go rest, but just generally speaking, if the sluggishness isn't about needing sleep, it's just the heaviness of mind, it's often because we haven't taken responsibility to be creative, to find something that's real. Like so in a directed meditation, we're finding something that's real within the category of the meditation that we're directing the attention to. The actual activity of love, the actual attitude of connecting, of including, of feeling that we belong, that someone belongs, the actual generosity, the heart, all of that is an enlivening emotion, right? So it has some energy. And it was just like you needed to invite your mind in and that for whatever reason in that moment, that phrase, someone who's been there for you, helped your mind see something that you could have seen earlier, but you just needed the doorway, like how to see that in fact my heart is moved when I bring this person to mind. The goodness of my heart opens and includes. Like if I brought out a, you know, a little fox that had a broken leg and I held it, you know, and not everyone, but many of your hearts would immediately open. You know, you could be in the most sluggish state what you've ever felt, but it would go away in a moment or some other image. So the question is, you know, eventually we'll have enough confidence in that goodness we won't need a specific doorway back, you know, the categories of people or, but in the meantime, we need to be willing, empowered to sort of know the terrain of our own heart and how to find our way back to the direct experiencing of that tender, including, you know, everything is able to be included, responding, caring, quality of the heart because it's not something you or I have to do we just have to rediscover it or refine it and it's often you know buried sometimes feels like behind packed behind you know twisted steel (laughs) thanks for sharing that with us any last thing and then we'll end with this
Yeah, and it's really nice for us to have an array because especially with this kind of practice, we should be doing something the heart wants to do, likes to do. And so if we have some choices, you know, working with the body, working with all beings, working with forgiveness, working with, we didn't do this today, but gratitude and appreciation practice can be very useful as the beginning of loosening the screws, feeling the actual movement of the heart, you know, the traditional categories, really, it's nice to, and there's a lot written about it now. I mean, Sharon's book, um, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary, Revolutionary Art of Happiness, is still on a really powerful text. I don't think it's aged at all, even though it's been around now for a couple decades. But there are many others besides that book that you can just sort of tap into to get more creative, skillful means so that when you sit down and put some time in, you can really, you're not, because we'll tend to just do what we've done before. So it's, it's good to on purpose like reflect a little bit about what you might do and just get a sense of how, okay, maybe I'll start here and see where it goes. Yeah, thanks. You wanna, Jasper, sure. Yeah, so the comment was how, uh, you know, in awareness practice, we include whatever objects arise. I wouldn't say uh, what this person said about loving kindness practice that we're thinking. Well, thinking's one skillful means, right? Thoughts that are aiming the mind to the reality, the present moment reality of love or metta. Those thoughts can be useful as a skillful means and metta practice. But you're absolutely right. He made the point about taking it into our situations. This is a situation right here. Like, can we be having this conversation or can we be here in this room together, all of us in our different roles, but in the space, in the quality of love, or in a few minutes, you know, as you do a little walking practice, and then those of you eating the evening meal, can that be the attitude of mind? And how might a person sustain that attitude of loving kindness and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity through all the twists and turns? You, you know, you end up doing something embarrassing, dropping a knife or something. Oh, honey. You know, it's like, or you, you're, it's not, oh honey, it's like you idiot. But then, then there's sort of the meeting of that harshness with compassion. Oh yeah, I care about that. So it's like, that's the idea or whatever people do in terms of hobbies and activities, whether it's dancing or washing the dishes or being with your pet, 
Right? I mean, this is, I think, more than any other reason, the unconscious reason people have pets is it provides an avenue to practice loving kindness. Not always. <laughs> right? And this is the great tragedy of our whole pet industry. But, uh, and the best side of it is it is a vehicle of unconditional love. People find it relatively easy, but through lack of imagination, we think it's only there. Only my, you know, our cat is called Bear. Only my cat Bear can that love flow freely. But you guys don't deserve it. You know, I mean, it's when you say it out loud like that, it's really silly. Or the, I notice like certain birds at the bird feeders, bird feeder are deserving of unconditional love. But there are certain invasive species, you know, and then once you read a few things about what they do to the other birds, you know, it's just like, you are not included in my heart. <laughs> I mean, it's, when you say it out loud, it's just ridiculous, but there it is. So absolutely, you know, that's the best place to practice. And in the same way we ha- we're really learning to bring um, awareness practice on the road, loving-kindness practice, and they really come together. The uh, intimacy and nimbleness of awareness practice really allows that attitude of loving-kindness to sort of show its strength and its resilience, right? And the love really supports the intimacy. So part of the reason we do this as a formal practice on retreat is because of how it informs the awareness practice and also just the kind of emotional healing that people feel in the practice. It's just, because the absence of that emotional healing, relational healing, can get in the way of doing this subtle and often difficult practice that we do. So let's uh, leave it here so there's a little time before the evening meal. Thanks everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.